Welcome to the In Search of Wisdom podcast, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, you can visit us at perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. Joshua here. Thank you for joining us. In today's episode, my guest is Dr. Kevin Vost, the author of How to Think Like Thomas Aquinas. Dr. Vost is a clinical psychologist and the author of more than 20 books. We discuss why Thomas Aquinas is a perennial figure, learning and memory, thinking and virtues, and much more. I hope you enjoy this episode with the wise and gracious Dr. Kevin Vost. Dr. Kevin Vost, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me on, Joshua. It's a pleasure. You have a doctorate in clinical psychology, and you're the author of 20 books with more on the way. I've enjoyed your work, and I'm really eager for the conversation about your book, How to Think Like Aquinas, The Sure Way to Perfect Your Mental Powers. Before we discuss the book, would you mind sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm waiting next month for my 60th birthday, so I've been around this world a little while. Just my personal background in terms of that would relate to some of the topics we may talk about. I was raised as a Catholic. In my late teens, I became very immersed in philosophy and read some very prominent atheistic philosophers from the, were around in my time and before Ayn Rand, Bertram Russell, Friedrich Nietzsche, and others. And I've embraced atheism for philosophical reasons became one for about 25 years. Went on with my life, got married, had kids, got a doctoral degree in clinical psychology, went to work in the disability evaluation field for social security and, and stayed intellectually immersed in things. In my early 40s, through a series of events, I read the writings of St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time. And it, and it kind of blew my mind, these, these philosophical arguments against atheism. I found that he had answered them amazingly well more than 700 years ago you know, and borrowing from theologians and philosophers who lived long before he did. So in my early 40s, you know, I kind of had reversion back to the Catholic faith and in Christ and the, his church. And shortly after that, I started writing books. I had worked part-time as a college professor teaching mostly psychology through most of my mid-30s and into my early 40s. In my early 40s, I stopped doing that, stopped teaching. And next thing I knew, I read, I had leisure. I found myself, you know, back in the church. And so then I started writing books, you know, for Catholic publishers. But interestingly, you know, I found that God, you know, always has a plan for us. So all those years I was away from the church, I was studying psychology, philosophy, my pet hobby of weightlifting and fitness training. And I found that when I came back to the church, there was a way to integrate that into all these books because the Catholic faith, you know, treats us as entire people, as bodies, you know, and, and souls. And we're, we're encouraged to develop both of them, you know, to enhance our humanity. So it's kind of was my focus since that time in 2004 when I came back to, to keep studying philosophy and religion and psychology and other fields, and then hopefully to find some interesting nuggets of truth there that I could pass on to other people. Some of the books have been on memory. That's my especially area in psychology. And most of my books in one way or another have passed on the knowledge of particular philosophers and theologians, the Stoics, Aristotle, and foremost amongst all of them, St. Thomas Aquinas. I love that. And I appreciate you sharing some background. 
around St. Thomas Aquinas, I was wondering if we could start and, and if you could maybe kind of provide an overview of why St. Thomas is such a perennial figure today. Sure, sure. St. Thomas Aquinas was born, we're not exactly sure when he was born, as it was the case for many people in the medieval era, we're much more likely to know when they died. But, but he was born around the year 1224, 1225, and he died on March 7th, the year 1274. So he is living there in the middle of the 13th century. He was a, a Dominican, a, you know, religious of Dominican order. He had become a priest, but he's such a monumental figure. He wrote an incredible number of works, incredibly massive works. His most famous is called the Summa Theologica. It's a million and a half words. It's like over 3,000 pages. And I like to think now we think, you know, well, now we're going digital with everything. But when I was growing up, we had things like, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica, this, this massive, you know, volume of books you could go to to find out just about anything about anything. And I think in his day, in some way, that Summa Theologica was kind of that book. It's where to go to learn any, almost anything about a philosophical or theological or religious topic. So Thomas was just an incredible synthesizer of past wisdom. He was, of course, well-versed in the Bible and the scripture. He knew all the, the church fathers' writings exceedingly well, especially the, the Latin fathers like Augustine and Jerome and these, these folks that wrote in Latin. But he also obtained translations and, and was well-versed in the Eastern Church Fathers, people like St. John Chrysostom and, and, and others, you know, that lived uh, in the East and, and likely wrote in Greek. So he knew them. He really synthesized so much of their wisdom. Uh, he was also well-versed in pagan philosophers. Aristotle is the one he cites the most. He's also strongly influenced by Plato. He cites people like the historic philosopher Seneca. He also was happy to borrow from the insights of Jewish philosophers and theologians like Maimonides and some Arab or Muslim thinkers like Avicenna and Averroes. So he was just this modelless man who is seeking truth from whatever sources it can be found. You know, so he's accumulating this wisdom from other people, but then he would process it through his own reasoning abilities and just, just give us wonderful works examining all kinds of topics on God, on creation, on, on human nature, on human psychology, on how we think and how we feel. So it's just, he's just a wonderful wealth of knowledge that, that, you know, we can just draw from 700 and some years later, it's still a valuable source of information. And when you think about this book that you wrote, How to Think Like St. Thomas Aquinas, what is it about that when you kind of come to that? What led you to pick that particular topic? Yeah, well, you know, one thing, my background was in doctor degrees in clinical psychology. My master's was in developmental and cognitive psychology. I always had a special interest in how we think and how we learn, how we remember. My doctoral work on Alzheimer's disease and aging was how those faculties might be impaired later in life. So I became aware that, that Thomas was a really important figure in helping us understand the way that we think and reason, the way we form concepts. And he borrowed some of that from Aristotle, but he also embellished it. He was also a master of these ancient techniques of memory improvement. And I happen to do my master's thesis on these techniques. And then I did some doctoral work with brain damage patients, teaching them these techniques. And Thomas was a key figure there too. So there's been all kinds of ongoing emphasis. I must admit, I kind of forgot the gist, the gist of your question. I may have gotten off track. What did you say again, Joshua? No, it was just around essentially why we should think like Aquinas. Oh, yeah, of course, <laughs> the book itself. Yeah, so, so there, you know, I knew he was such an amazingly rich source, you know, of this thinking. And I thought some of the main problems today are 
that so often we're disinclined to think. You know, so many people will latch on to a particular ideology, a political belief, or their religious affiliation, and be really unwilling to hear the other side, to think true through things, try to seek truth together. It's like we watch these shows on the news and you have a two people from opposite sides and they completely past each other, have apparently no interest in finding out, you know, what the other person actually thinks. But Thomas was a great master of doing that, of hearing other positions. So in his Summa Theologica, his greatest work, every topic he addresses starts with what he calls objections, where he will very cogently and fairly present what people with different opinions on a particular issue, different opinions from him, what they've had to say about it and why. He shows us, hey, I've heard you. And then he goes and explains maybe why his opinion is different or, or what particular aspects he pulls from that other person's view, particular partial truths, you know, gives them credit for that, but showing where, where maybe it misses the mark or we can think about things further. So I just found Thomas an incredible model for the right way to think. And then as I was writing this book, the publisher, well, the original publisher, Sophia, and who was my editor for this book, pointed out this particular letter called A Letter to Brother John on How to Study from St. Thomas Aquinas. It's just a brief little thing. And I'd come across it before, and he suggested me we structure our book after this letter. So, so we did. And I will just tell you, I originally laid this book out with a little bit different idea. Building on Norman Vincent Peale's old book, The Power of Positive Thinking, I wanted to call this The Power of Prudential Thinking, which maybe wasn't the best title. But Thomas wrote extensively about the virtue of prudence or practical wisdom, which is, you know, how not just to know these lofty truths, but how to guide your life by them. And that, that, so that is still the theme of this book. We just use that letter that has simple little precepts as our guidepost there. That We don't want to think like Aquinas just so we can, you know, dazzle people with metaphysics or, or natural theology. We want to think like Thomas so we can kind of focus in on what's really important in life, you know, and live better lives and hopefully help the people around us live better lives too. You quote him in that letter in the beginning of the book, if I recall, choose to enter by small rivers and not to go straight into the sea. What might be a good starting point if we want to start thinking like Aquinas? Yeah, you know, just and his whole letter in some ways is kind of like commonplace maxims. You might have heard things like this before, you know, you're just going to start small and work our way big. But then you can go and flesh them out. There's really a depth of meaning you can, you can uh, add into that. But yeah, he is saying, you know, let, let's start small. You know, we have the KISS principle here, you know, in modern times, KIS is keep it simple, stupid. So it's kind of a nicer way, I think, of, of giving us that principle. That if we're going to learn things, even difficult things, we're going to start by the small rivers and work our way up into what's deeper. So we're going to, you know, build upon things we already know and then try to go deeper and deeper into levels of learning, but, you know, but without jumping in over our heads. And maybe also then seeking out people who are further along than we are, you know, so they can help draw us in, take us into those deeper waters. I love that. You begin the book around this, the willingness to learn. And if we kind of think about that, anything come to mind around how do we know if we have that willingness to learn? And, and maybe if not, how do we cultivate it? Yeah, yeah. You know, Thomas writes about docility as one of the key components of prudence, of being practically wise. He had to be willing to learn from other people. It comes from, you know, the word comes from the Latin docere, to, to teach, is actually get like our doctor title. I mean, way most specifically means a person who's mastered a subject and is able to teach it. But docility then, that willingness to learn, and it's kind of funny how, how many words related to virtues kind of become restricted or tainted over time, like temperance, which is self-control or moderation, for a time became associated just with not drinking alcohol, you know, but it really means so much more than that. 
or even virtue itself, you know, at times is thought of only relating to sexual issues, but it really relates to everything human beings do. But docility is kind of another one like this. If we hear, say, a person's docile, you might think, well, they're passive or they're a doormat, you know, they're not active, they're not, they're just submissive. But it really means, yeah, an active thing where we really want to seek out the truth, we're willing to learn it, we're willing to open up books, we're willing to talk to other people and receive counsel. So it's kind of like, you know, that, that a foundation of learning in thinking is realizing, you know, I don't know it all already, so I need to be open to truths from other people. You mentioned virtues. And when you think about cardinal virtues, theological virtues, how does that connect in terms of thinking like Aquinas? Yeah. Now, Thomas, you know, in Assume Theology, he really talks a lot about the virtues. He talks about them as groups, like you put the cardinal virtues, you know, four moral virtues of prudence, temperance, you know, fortitude or courage, and justice. These are virtues that regulate, you know, how we control our own desires or control our our energies and anger, how we treat other people, treat them fairly in justice, how we kind of put it all together in prudence, you know, knowing the right means to virtuous ends, you know, how courageous should we be in this situation? How is it displayed? Things like that. So what they call the cardinal virtues, the four key moral virtues, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude, you know, are all interrelated. But now Thomas also talks about other groups of virtues. He, he talks about what's called, what they call the intellectual virtues that come primarily from Aristotle, but they're also in the scripture of science, understanding, and wisdom. Science briefly being how we seek out cause and effect relationships, like, you know, like conducting scientific experiments in the most formal sense. Understanding refers to our ability to grasp underlying principles, the human capacity, you know, to think in terms of concepts. We're the only creature on earth that can do this, to understand things at their universal level, form concepts, take the concepts, make them into words, communicate with each other. So so science or cause and effect relationships, understanding this ability to think at a deep level. And then wisdom is considered the highest intellectual virtue. He's saying this is where we judge both the conclusions of science and the principles of understanding. You know, wisdom is kind of like we're focusing on the things that matter the most, taking these particular facts we know, these particular principles we know and say, okay, what do we make of them? How do we use those to guide us to the right kind of a life? You know, so, so Thomas has very illuminating ideas on these intellectual virtues too. In the third class, the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, all particularly Christian virtues, you know, saying Paul talks about these, and Thomas gives a wonderful analysis here too. And there's so much more we could say. I just have to keep it real brief, and maybe towards the end we can flesh out charity, the highest of those virtues, a little bit. But generally, those virtues are virtues that are infused by God into our souls. We get them at the sacrament of baptism. They're fortified in confirmation. And they can raise us to higher levels than these natural virtues. So the faith, hope, and charity, you know, you're not going to find these in the pagan philosophers. These you're going to find in the Christian philosophers and theologians like St. Augustine, St. Paul, St. Thomas Aquinas. And St. Thomas urges us to imitate the life of Christ and the saints as kind of a model to follow. And some of these figures obviously provide a, a high bar how do you recommend kind of at a, as a starting point? Sure. You know, I think in psychology, you're not sure if they do it much anymore, but these talk about they call stretch goals, you know, goals that are going to reach you, you know, stretch you out towards your highest. In a way, we can look at the saints that way. Well, those are the peaks of excellence that can, we may not be able to get there, but we can stretch, reach, try to become more like them. I'd say, you know, in some saints, you read the amazing stories of how they, suffered maybe the martyrs and endured things. You thought, wow, that seems so far beyond my capacity. <laughs> well, one wonderful thing is too, 
There's a saint for virtually whatever your national background is, whatever you are in geography, whatever your occupation is, whatever illness you might have suffered. There's some saint out there who's been, you know, associated with that. One thing we can do is try to find saints that in some ways are more like we are. We can relate to them. You know, many saints have very menial jobs. Saint I love, Saint Martin de Porras, is, is usually depicted holding a broom because he is happy to work as a porter and to clean a priory and everything. And yet he also had amazing abilities. He had surgical skills. He's actually even well-versed in, in Thomas Aquinas' own Summa Theologica. But I'd say there with the saints is, yeah, just kind of be open to saints that really speak to you because many of them became saintly through doing relatively ordinary things, but doing them out of the love of God and for the service for people around them. I love that stretch goal. I like that. Thank you. A common theme when we look at these perennial figures and in the saints, saints alike, is around this recommendation towards silence, towards solitude. What does St. Thomas kind of talk about silence and solitude? Yeah, well, one of his precepts, you know, is basically that, you know, speak slower, be slow to speak, you know, to be sure to listen, you know, not to be just in a mad rush to, to voice our opinions, but to hear what other people's opinions truly are, to think about them. When we're carrying on a conversation, while the other person's talking, not just formulating your next reply, but also hearing what they actually have to say. You know, it goes along with that docility, being willing to learn. In any interaction we, we have with another person, we should you know, be willing to be silent first, but also, yeah, at times actual solitude. We need to have the ability also to be by ourselves, to think and reflect. And one of his precepts talks about, he says, you, know, you need to learn to love to be in your cell if you want to be admitted to the wine cellar, you know. And at that time, you know, monks and some of the religious were in actual physical little cells by themselves for long periods of time where they'd be expected to, to study, you know, if they're going to teach or if they're uh, copying books or illuminating books. So even though, you know, most of us today aren't monks in actual cells, most of us today, you know, we do desire and need to learn things in our own, you know, I can kind of see the background as, as we're speaking, you know, you have a, what you might call your office, your study, I'm in my own. So typically we do have our own study spaces where we can devote time to study. And it's good to develop that ability to do that, to do that in silence, you know, to turn off other distractions and to be able to enjoy the ability to think deeply about something that's important for a reasonably extended period of time. And another point that I pulled from Thomas there is something common to our modern world now. Maybe not so much in this last year, but hopefully again in the future. You know, when we're going out different places and if we have to wait, if you have to wait at an airport for, you know, Lord knows how long between flights or if you're in a busy doctor's office or whatever, we can also use times when we're required to be there relatively by ourselves for study, we can bring books with us, or we can set aside time we're going to pray instead of flipping through a celebrity gossip magazine or something. So yeah, that idea for solitude, you know, this is when we can study, this is when we kind of hear the voice of the Lord, and it's good and it's refreshing, even if we do love to get out there and mix it up with people and socialize. Those periods of solitude, you know, should refresh us and should charge our batteries in terms of energy and knowledge. You write a lot of really practical tips and tools in the book. And I was wanting to know if you could take a bit of time and kind of discuss those four steps to memory and kind of see if we could flush out this utilizing some of these mental images and how that can help us with thinking and memory. Sure. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that one, Joshua. Actually, my, my first Catholic book was called Memorize the Faith. And it applied these memory methods to how you memorize things like the Ten Commandments, you know, or the Rosary Mysteries, or even all the books of the Bible. And I did that because when I was in my late teens, I discovered some of these practical books on mnemonics or memory techniques. 
And I found they worked amazingly well for me, helping me remember academic material. So much that when I did my master's thesis in psychology, I did it on the psychological studies, testing these techniques with people of different ages, but mostly with adolescents, school-aged children, middle schoolers, high schoolers, you know. And I found that these techniques, when they're trained, they tend to be very, very powerful. They had some studies like where first and second graders who were taught these techniques outperformed fifth and sixth graders who weren't, or junior high school students outperforming high school students if the junior high students have been taught these memory techniques to do things like, you know, to learn vocabulary or new foreign words or biological facts, any kind of factual information. So anyway, as I did my research on this master's thesis, even though I was an atheist at the time, I read in the historical books that Thomas Aquinas was actually a key figure in the history of these memory techniques. They go back to the ancient Greeks and Romans, but St. Thomas Aquinas and his teachers, St. Albert the Great, the patron saint of scientists, they studied these ancient Latin memory texts and wrote extensively about them. So to really narrow this all down. Now, even in Thomas' Summa Theologica, I mentioned it's got like over 3,000 pages. In about one page smack dab in the middle, he actually talks about this memory technique. And he breaks it down into four simple steps. He says, there's four things a person will do to improve his memory. And two of them I say we already know. One is he said, you'll be anxious, you'll pay attention, you'll focus, right? If we're going to study to learn something, we, we have to pay attention. We have to concentrate. So concentration. Another, he says, is repetition. You need to rehearse it. We all know that. There's an old saying, you know, repetitio et mater memori. Repetition is the mother of memory. So we got to concentrate. we got to repeat if we really want to learn something well. But he has two other elements that are an aspect of what was called artificial memory or the art of memory. This technique that goes back to the Simonides, the ancient Greek, and Cicero, the Roman, wrote about these. But here's two steps involved here, two additional steps. One, Thomas says to remember something, even an abstract concept. He says, make some kind of an unwanted or unusual image to represent it. He says, because the way we think, information first comes into us through our senses. And if we can see, if we can picture something in a concrete image, we will remember it better that way. And he also says, things that are strange and unusual are easier for us to remember than everyday mundane things, because they're always there in front of us. So that third element there is, Forming it using visual images. And the fourth, he says, to remember body knowledge, you need to put it in some kind of order. You need to arrange it. Okay? So I'll lay these four out now in the way Thomas described them. He said, you know, you need an image, you need a particular order, you need to concentrate, and you need to repeat it. All right? So if I can just flesh this out, Joshua, if we have time, just real briefly. Absolutely. I'll just, That'd I'll just be make great. this concrete with four little things. And I won't tell you what the things are until we've gone through them, okay? Ordering arrangement. One of the classics is the use of a house. This book, the Ad Herenium, written in about 84 BC, so approximately, uses a suggests that you use a house. And so I'm going to use a house. Okay, so here we go. I'll ask you to put your concentration on high because we need to do that. I want to imagine that you're coming to visit me at, at my house. It's a kind of a sprawling ranch in a midwestern town surrounded by old maple trees and oak trees and all. Now you come and you ring my front doorbell. The door opens. You're blinded by this light, and you hear this resounding crash. So you think, what kind of house does, does he have here? You know. So the front door, that's our location number one. The door opens, this bright light, this huge crash. Okay, now number two, you're brave enough to step inside. When you step inside, you notice there's a doormat right across the threshold. Strange thing about this doormat, you hear that it's cussing. It actually has lips, and it's... It's using uh, foul language, so you're kind of trying to stand on the lips to muffle it. 
It's a very strange thing, right? Number two, the doormat that's cussing. Number three, okay, now you're in my foyer. There's a glass panel next to our front door, and you just glance around and you look out that panel. You thought, wait, oh, I didn't realize that. Look at that. That's the most beautiful, glorious day I've ever seen out there. So just imagine that. Number three, glorious day out the gl glass panel. I'm just going to do one more. Now you're back in the foyer. You look uh, behind you on the other wall, and there's a portrait up there. But I've got a portrait of your own parents, you know? You're thinking, geez, what's he doing with my parents' picture up on his wall? But there they are, right? So that was number four. All right? Now, we'll remember that repetition is the mother of memory. Also, if you use these ordered techniques, you will actually memorize them in their exact order, forwards and backwards. So let's just rehearse it, repeat it one more time in back order. Number four was the portrait on the wall. And there we saw your own parents. Number three was that glass panel through which we saw the front yard and the glorious day. Number two was the doormat that was cussing. And number one at the front door, we saw that bright light and heard that crash. Okay, so there's one little brief example. But, but what the heck were these silly images? What have you remembered? Well, what I've gone through is just the four parts of 10 that I first presented in Memorize of Faith. Okay, number one, the door opens, you see that bright light, you hear that crash. Well, who said fiat looks, let there be light? You know, that's God. That's just a representation of an image for God. It's just an incredibly powerful light, right? Oh, and what was that crash? We said, well, that was the, the crash of false idols. We're trying to remind ourselves of the first commandment, to honor God alone and not false idols. So that's just a little silly representation of it. Number two is much easier even. The, the doormat is cursing at us. And what's actually the second commandment? not to use the Lord's name in vain, you know, so pretty straightforward. Number three, it was that glorious day out in the yard through the panel to remind us to keep holy the Sabbath or the Lord's day. And you can't get much easier than number four, honor your father and your mother. That's why they're there in the portrait, just simple reminders. So with a technique like this, and in the first, you know, in Memories of Faith to do the Ten Commandments, I, one of my favorite, like the fifth is a gun rack that's locked because it's Thou shalt not kill. I have a chandelier up in the seventh location made out of solid steel because that reminds you, thou shalt not steal. Over on the, there's a, the ninth location is this bench and your next door neighbor's wife is sitting there. It's a simple reminder not to covet your neighbor's wife. You know? So a technique like this, this is how those four those elements work. You have these visual images. and They can be very silly, but they're concrete. You can picture them, you can remember them, but they represent deeper truths, you know, like the commandments themselves. And once you establish a framework like this, like in Memorize the Faith, I go through a whole imaginary house and there's 60 locations. There's 10 in the foyer, there's others in other rooms. But once you learn this location system, it becomes like a notepad. So you can use that same series, the front door, the doormat, and so on. You can use that again and again and again for completely different bodies of information. You could use it for your grocery list. You could have bananas jumping out at you when you open the door. You could trip over a sack of potatoes sitting on the mat, you know. And you can use that every week for a different grocery list. And why is that? Well, remember, repetition is the mother of memory. If you don't repeat it, this is going to be gone. But the things that are worth repeating, like the Ten Commandments or whatever material you choose to do with this, it does hold. To make this brief, to kind of bring this to an end, my practical use for this, when I went through schools, any kind of academic information I had to, to memorize, any kind of a process, any steps, any series of things. And now, what I use this for now is actually its original use. This was used by ancient orators in Greece and Rome to memorize their speeches, not word for word. 
but just the key concepts in exact order, the topics they wanted to address, you know, so they couldn't be thrown off. And I do that myself. If I give an hour talk, I might have 40 points I want to make, and I, I'm laying them out in this house, you know. So, and they're numbered one to 40. So if I had to, I could literally give my talk backwards. So I've yet to have the occasion to think that, that would be a good thing to do, you know. But they're powerful methods. And they're methods that, you know, surprisingly, even people like uh, St. Albert the Great and St. Thomas Aquinas write about and recommend. I love that. I've heard about these type of practices, you know, a few different times, but was never really aware of the origin, how ancient these practices were and, and kind of that connection back to St. Thomas for sure. It's interesting how vivid these images can be and it's almost kind of tough to get out of your mind once you kind of get them in there. Do you ever kind of recommend utilizing a maybe like fam very familiar home, like a childhood home, any sort of kind of best practices uh, around that? Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, in my books, when I use this, I had a great illustrator who, who drew these rooms, you know, but it's kind of funny. It was kind of patterned after my own house in the illustrator. I didn't send him any photos or anything. Just based off my verbal text, he put these rooms together. And I'm like, wow, he's pretty darn accurate. It really looks a lot like that. But yeah, that's again, going through narrow streams, what you already know. What do you know better than your own home? So yeah, that's what I do recommend to people. If you want to really excel these techniques, you can learn the rooms that I lay out, but you can also base some on your own house. In fact, there was a 10-year-old boy who contacted me years ago. He had a goal to memorize the names of all the popes, and there were 265 at the time. And his mom called me. They wanted to know how to do it. And he actually did it. It took him a few months, but he mastered them all. But yeah, he started with the 60 places in the house I drew. Then I recommended that he build more on his own house. And we actually uh, visited with him one time, and he showed us. They first put a notebook together that actually used their own house. And I think later they like used their route to going to their school and their church and so on. But, but yes, the general question is, you can build these based upon what you know best, your own home, and also even the images themselves. You know, I gave you, you know, like the various, you know, ones for the light and the cursing and so forth, because those are the things that popped into my mind when I heard these commandments. But sometimes the images that come into your mind are, are even going to be more powerful, you know, because they're the things that have the natural association to you in the first place, or you wouldn't have thought of them, you know. So you can use other people's locations and images, but if you really want to get good, you, you probably have the best results using your own locations and your own images for whatever you're trying to remember. Great. Next, you get into some things to avoid, and you kind of identify 20 logical fallacies. How would you define a logical fallacy, and, and why are they important? Yeah, and you know, logicians, you know, professional philosophers who study logic have had, you know, lists of these fallacies that go back hundreds of th thousands of years, actually. we A lot of them have Latin names because they were scribed at the time when our, most of our scholarship was done in Latin, so these go way, way back. They're kind of common ways that human thinking either just tends to go wrong or ways that other people, you know, orators, rhetoricians can try to misguide us by kind of, you know, building on ways we tend to oversimplify things or think about things, you know, to, you know, either or. So there are ways that our reasoning can easily go wrong, that sometimes we will make these mistakes ourselves or sometimes we'll encounter them in other people's writings or sometimes other people will actually try to use them to drive us towards their way of thinking, whether or not it's actually true. There's so many super common ones, people probably already know, are like the ad hominem, where you argue against not a person's actual ideas, but just that person, you call them a name, you know, or you say they don't have the credentials, you don't really address their argument, you just make an attack on that person. But I will tell you, if I can get serious, probably the most disconcerting 
because I see it more now in, in our own you know, United States than I used to in the past, was the one called the argument ad baculum. And the baculum really meant like a cudgel or a stick. And this is replacing logic kind of with a threat, you know, kind of like saying, you know, you have to think the way I'm telling you, or you're not allowed to think otherwise. And I think we're seeing more and more of that today, where certain groups and organizations, you see it on universities, they'll, they'll protest, they'll have a person who disagrees with their way of seeing the world, and they won't want to hear them out, they prevent them from coming. So I think we're seeing more and more of this, where we're kind of replacing argument well, with threat, and then the original Latin term, argument ad baculum, argument from the stick. When you think about society today, you write about some intellectual errors. Is there maybe one or two that are kind of most concerning or come to mind for you? Yeah. The first one that really strikes me is what's called constructivism. And there's a certain sense, you know, this is that it's common sense. If you speak of constructivism in terms of, like, your own knowledge base, your own understanding of the world. There's a sense that we build that, we construct that, you know, we try to learn more things, we try to integrate things. So we're kind of constructing our own view of understanding the world, you know, and that's, I think, is an accurate and a good thing. But there's also this very common sense of constructivism that we don't just build our understanding of the world. Basically, our thoughts build the world, you know, it's like our thoughts create reality. And we're seeing this today, I think, so much Probably most prevalently, we see this in terms of all the discussion now on on gender and race. We have people, you know, declaring that they're a race other than their chromosomal pattern, or we've even had people saying they're a race different than they are. They're kind of acting as if their own thought, their own will creates reality instead of reflecting reality. So it's almost the exact opposite too of of the Thomistic view of reality. It's called or truth. It's called a correspondence theory of truth. Truth is when external reality and our thoughts correspond. They match up. It's true. We grasp what's in its internal reality and external reality mesh. But today we're seeing more and more people who seem to think that internal reality is what creates the external reality. But we can really see that, you know, if we take it to its extreme, the limits there, people will say you're whatever gender you say you are, you're whatever race you say you are. But there are times when reality just smacks us in the face. No matter how strongly you believe it, if you believe, you know, you step out in the road in front of a speeding truck, you're going to get flattened, whether you'd like to believe so or not. There is a reality out there, and our goal really should be to make our thoughts reflected. Now, this is, doesn't say that there's certain aspects of reality we cannot work to change, because of course we can. That's another blessing that God gave us. But to me, this idea of constructivism, that we ourselves build reality by making it whatever we, we say it is or wish it to be, is very, very destructive, and it also makes us really unable to converse and reason with each other if, you know, well, that's your reality, here's mine. Well, where's the common ground to find out, uh, you know, what's true and what's not? Similar to these fallacies and intellectual errors, St. Thomas writes, love the truth regardless of the source. Could you speak a bit in terms of, you know, what that looked like for Thomas Aquinas, how he practiced that? Sure, sure. And I'm going to take just a second and look up a quote because he has a wonderful quotation about that. But again, that characterizes Thomas's thought. He cares about truth, even if a person who disagrees with him in other serious ways, when they do make a statement about a particular thing that's true, he's going to acknowledge that, you know, maybe thank them for it and use it if possible. And basically, to set the stage that Thomas is a person who's also known to really integrate faith and reason. There are some people that act as if they're opposites. Many people are already the science, people think science is opposed to faith or reason. You know, you're one or the other. 
And there are some people who are believers. There's some Christians or some people in other religions who say, we only have the faith. We only have the Bible. We only have our particular holy writings. And you don't need reason. Reason, you know, guides you astray. Well, Thomas was one, in keeping with the Catholic Church, that says that faith and reason are not opposed. You know, again, there's only one external truth. And reason, what we can figure out on our own, if we're accurate, is never going to contradict reality revealed to us by God himself, who is truth itself. But anyway, in Thomas's day, again, okay, the 13th century, there were people who said that by pulling from people like Aristotle and Seneca and Plato, these pagan philosophers, you know, before Christ, he said that he was diluting the wine of the divine wisdom with the water of human wisdom, right? You know, you're watering down the faith, throw out that philosophy. You don't need that. We've got the Bible, you know, we've got revelation. But Thomas had a different view there. He said that those who use philosophical doctrines in sacred scripture in such a way as to subject them to the service of faith do not mix water with wine, but change water into wine. So Thomas is basically saying, you know, natural reason is good. The accurate conclusions that come from it can serve in the service of faith. They're never going to contradict the faith. So Thomas is this person who's never afraid to hear what another person has to think and to give them credit if he concludes it. You're right. You're right on that point. So he is open, you know, to learning from others, even people who who disagreed with him, because he saw that, you know, even people who don't acknowledge the faith, at least we have this common ground if we acknowledge reason, our natural human capacity to acquire truth. So I think Thomas, again, he's a wonderful figure there for his total respect for reason. He took it as far as it would go, but he also transcended it with faith, and he saw how they they go together. I mean. Uh, St. Pope John Paul II, you know, in his encyclical on faith and reason, said, you know, faith and reason are like two wings upon which we fly to the truth. You know, very, very eloquently stated. And Thomas, his whole body of work is just about that, just about showing how the beauty of the intersection of faith and reason. And you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation just the sheer size of this summa. And you wrote another book about life lessons, 12 life, life lessons from Thomas Aquinas. And I was hoping we could close out the conversation and touch on a few of those if we could. And the first one you write is, be your own best friend. And I'll quote here, we cannot fully love others unless we love our highest self. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Sure. Yeah. You know, Thomas, he wrote just about every human thing, you know, and one thing he wrote about extensively was the nature of friendship. And here's an area where he borrows from Aristotle and greatly transcends it later on. But, uh, you know, Aristotle was saying that our natural drive for friendship, our natural drive to love other people, he said, its natural foundation is our love of ourself. We want good things for ourselves. We want to be happy. We want to live. You know, we want to survive. So Thomas says that if you're going to be a true friend to another person, it's built upon that friendship with yourself, that love of yourself, he said. But to do that, you have to love what's highest in yourself. You know, if all you love is acquiring things, getting things, you know, it's not going to mesh with another person because sometimes there's only enough things to go around. If what you love is virtue and justice, if you love God, if you're seeking those things to improve yourselves in those ways, then it makes you all the more ready and able to share that with other people, to seek that together with other people. So Thomas is saying, yeah, a proper love of yourself, not selfishness. But loving, you know, what God gave you, the capacity to to think and find truth, the capacity to love other people. If you love that in yourself, then you treat a friend or people you love as a second self. You treat them as you would 
yourself. So that is what can the natural basis, Thomas says, of true friendship, of true care for other people. And similar to that, as you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and kind of turbulent times in the in the world now and throughout history. What can Thomas teach us about finding harmony and peace? Yeah. And for this book, you know, what I did, of course, the Summa Theologica is full of you know, thousands of quotable quotes. And I picked out 12, you know, to touch on some interesting, you know, vital topics to us in our practical lives today and things going on in, in the broader culture. So, yeah, there was one chapter I called No Harmony, No Peace. And Thomas, you know, he's all super precise whenever he looks at a concept. And he talks about, you know, we think in terms of peace, and he talks about it in terms of concord, which would be peace between different people, which we probably normally think of in terms of, you know, give us peace on earth. We're not going to be warring with each other. We're going to, can't we all just get along, you know? And Thomas says that is concord. That's definitely an important, you know, element of peace. He said, but you're not going to have concord with other people if you don't have harmony within your own soul. You know, if you don't know what you want, if you're conflicted, if you're desiring the wrong things, then you're not going to be in a position to, to get along peacefully with each other. So what you really need is that, that harmony within your own soul. So you're seeking the right things. You're seeking things that, you know, that are true and just. And then it's going to set you up all the more to live peacefully with others. So the way Thomas says, he's always looking at all angles or two or more sides of things. So he tells us, yes, peace is a social thing between people. But there's also that element within our own souls. And if we don't cultivate that peacefulness within ourselves, we're going to have a heck of a time getting along with others. And it's a probably a problem today, too, because we have so many utopian type movements out there thinking if everyone just had the same material things, then we'd all get along. You know? But Thomas is saying, no, I mean, you know, make us all rich, but we're not all going to get along. If we don't have harmonies within our own souls regarding true spiritual goods. I love that. And. Being the author of 20 books, and if I, the bit of research that I've done is accurate, you started writing in your mid 40s. Is that accurate? Yeah, it sure is. I remember it was, it was late December in 2004, so I'd have been 43 when I first proposed my first book. And then the first one, Memories of Faith, came out in July of 2006, so I was 45. So yeah, and I'm, I'm approaching 60, so these books have been done in about 15 years' time, 10 of which I was fully employed in the last, well, last four and a half, I have been retired from full-time. Wow. So I have to ask a question around just uh, productivity. How do some of these concepts that we've discussed today kind of connect with productivity, if that's how you would classify it? Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, let me get a few angles on that. One, you know, Thomas talks about knowledge base. So important, you know, he wants to, we want to keep growing, keep learning. So like I said, I was 25 years as an atheist. But when I was outside the church, I was still studying philosophy. I was reading some theology too, because actually it was on an intellectual basis. I didn't believe in God. I wished I could, but I couldn't find the arguments to make me think it was reasonable until I came across Thomas, you know. But anyway, I was able to write my books too, because I kept studying, you know, all those years. So I was kind of building up, building up, kind of moving up kind of trying to go up the streams. So I finally came back to the church and I finally got immersed in the writings of Thomas. That's when I was kind of, maybe the, the floodgates were open and I was hoping, okay, maybe now I can I can share some of this. But in terms of that, the general productivity in writing, you know, I was blessed in my disposition just to be a super early riser. You know, I get up really early in the morning, even when I'm retired, even when I was working on the weekends. So I usually do some reading very early, four or five, six in the morning, I would, I would read. My own case, I, I now I, you know, I'm not working. I go work out in the gym for an hour, like 6.30, 7.30 in the morning, 
come home, eat breakfast, chat with my wife, have some coffee, and then I write during the morning hours. If I'm working on a book, a new book of maybe 200, 250 pages usually takes me about three months to write a rough draft when I'm working just like 9 to 11 or so most mornings. And then I'll have you know a few periods during the year where I'll do that. I might do one or two books, you know, a couple of two-month periods where I, or three-month or four-month periods where I'm writing the first draft. And then they come back from an editor maybe a few months later. And usually when they're back from the editor, I can clean things up in just a, a few days. So it's not it's not super demanding. But so there I'd say, yeah, I was just fortunate to be able to study for years and build up that knowledge base. And then fortunate to be an early riser and just to you rarely encounter writer's block. I'm most likely to do that if like a publisher has asked me to write on a certain topic, you know. But especially if I'm writing a topic that I've suggested I've been thinking about for years, then I'm usually just to be very fluid. So so that's helped. And yeah, you know, general lessons from Thomas. Yeah, I do have a study. I'm kind of a, a neat freak, so I do keep it clean and organized. But you can tell, though, if I'm really in the throes in the middle of a book, Sometimes this, this huge desk I have will become totally cluttered with book after book after book. And sometimes I actually will let it sit like that for a few days until I reward myself by, by finishing that section and shutting up all my you know, resources. But anyway, yeah, but the kind of tips that Thomas recommends, I do try to apply them in my own life. And something I try to do in that book, too, is show there's all kinds of incidents that show that Thomas did these things himself. He didn't just recommend them. He actually, he actually employed them. Yeah, it seems to be working. So that's great. If you're comfortable sharing, I'm curious about this. You've kind of mentioned a couple times that 25 years or so, and then St. Thomas kind of helping you kind of get back to the faith. Was there any sort of moment or insight? Is there anything that you kind of recall around that that might be useful to share? Yes, yes. And it's interesting. I will tell you, Joshua, something I found out, you know, after I had come back, is that Pope Leo Thirteenth from the late 1800s, there, there's one of his letters about Thomas that starts my copy of the Summa Theologica. And he's writing like in, I think, 1879. He says, for people who say they will follow only reason. And now too, he's writing like Radford Darwin's books have come out after the uh, Enlightenment thinking. And there are a lot of people saying, I'm not going to follow faith, I'm going to go by reason. But he said that people who are going to be, say they'll be guided only by reason, they're most likely to be brought back to the faith, you know, by the stirrings of the Holy Spirit, and by the writings of the church fathers and scholastics, and foremost of all, by St. Thomas Aquinas, you know. So as I read that, I thought, that's exactly what happened to me, you know. But just, just in brief, here's how it happened. So during those 25 years away, you know, I read a lot of philosophy. I love particularly the Stoics and Aristotle, and their modern exponents, the Stoics. There's a lot of cognitive psychology, Albert Ellis, Aaron Beck, people who pioneered these methods, got a lot of them from the Stoics. And Albert Ellis was the guy I followed. And he was a strong atheist, so I read a lot of his stuff. You know. And then in terms of, I also loved Aristotle. And Ayn Rand, the atheist philosopher and novelist, I read a lot of her works. And she said they were kind of a natural outgrowth of Aristotle. Now, interestingly, Ellis and Rand were atheists. But, you know, it came to me that the Stoics themselves and Aristotle themselves, they didn't know Christ, but their natural reason did lead them to some conception of God. I thought, isn't that ironic? Well, anyway, I get a great courses course on Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. Wonderful book. And it's taught by a Jesuit Catholic priest, uh, Father uh, Joseph Kuturski. And I love that so much, I got another series he did on natural law. It was a DVD series, I remember this. And he's going through, he's talking about all my favorite people, the Greek tra tragedy writers, you know, the Stoics, Aristotle. Then he's moving into St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. 
And I'm like, well, where are the great atheist thinkers defending natural law and natural human dignity and all this, you know? But anyway, through his course, he got me to reread a couple books of the philosopher Mortimer Adler, 20th century philosopher. One was how to think about God. The other was the difference of man and the difference it makes, like how we are different from every other species on earth. Adler himself was a Thomist, a follower of Thomas. And anyway, that led me to read St. Thomas for the first time, his own writings when I was 43 years old. And to make a long story short, the two most powerful arguments that took me away from the faith, one, it's written by people like Richard Dawkins and The Godless Delusion, but it goes way back, that the idea of God is self-contradictory. They say, how can God be all-knowing and all-powerful? If he knows what he's going to do tomorrow, he can't do, he doesn't have the power to do anything different. You know, it would conflict. And I found that kind of convincing. I didn't know how to answer that when I first read that in my teens. Until I read St. Thomas Aquinas, and he's talking about God being eternal, and he's talking about the nature of his omnipotence. And one thing, you know, just, just in a nutshell, the atheists tend to think that, that God is just a, a big human. But Thomas is saying that God lives in the eternal now. He's completely actualized. There's no yesterday, today, and tomorrow for him like there is for us. It's all present for him. So there is no, you know, basis for this contradiction between his power and his knowledge. It's all, everything's always present to him at, at, at all times. And he even gives a nice little analogy here. He says that, he says, just like if you're walking to, you know, on a hilly road to some town, you're not going to know the people who came on the path before you or after you. He said, but a person from a perspective high above, they can see all that at once. He said, that's God's perspective. It's not like ours. You know? So that was kind of an eye opener. And of course, he fleshes this out in far, far more depth. Another big argument came from people like the objectivists, Ayn Rand, and they said this, fundamental principle, existence exists. They said, open your eyes. There's the universe. You don't need to ask where that came from. That's the starting point. Okay. A similar version was from the British philosopher Bertrand Russell. He said, I became an atheist at like age 12 when I asked myself, who made God? But then I found that, that Thomas had answers to those two. And very briefly in his third proof, he talks about the difference between necessary being and contingent or possible being and how everything we see in the universe, none of us was here 200 years ago. None of us will be physically present here, you know, 100 years in the future. Nothing in the universe existed eternally. Nothing can give itself its own existence. You know, so he goes on there to explain that God is the one and only thing that was not made. He is the maker. He is the creator. His very essence to exist, the only, the, nothing else can be said of any other being, but God is the source and font of all being. You know, he goes through very, very deep and precise philosophical arguments. And then, you know, in a very neat way, he also points out, you know, when Moses in the desert, you know, he had these primitive Hebrew people out in the desert there. And Moses asked God, you know, well, what's your name? Who should I say sent me? And God for the burning bush tells him, Yahweh, he says, or, or I am who am. He says, basically, tell him, you know, that I am, that he who is sent you. And Thomas says, well, there he is, right? In those two words in the scripture, I am, expresses this fundamental nature of God as the fount and source of all existence. You know, so there's all kinds of wonderful ahas. As I went through Thomas, seeing that virtually every argument I've seen the atheists make, both the people who were around in the 70s when I became an atheist and this later crew that came around later, their arguments are all very, very old. And Thomas and other great philosophers and theologians I found had really given remarkable answers to them years and years ago. But most of these modern scientists and philosophers, their knowledge base often does not include a deep understanding of that old perennial knowledge that's there in Thomas and in he pulled from people even farther back than him. That's fascinating. I appreciate you sharing. I was wondering if we could 
wrap up the conversation with maybe a bit about St. Thomas's thoughts around love and connection. There seems to be a bit of division and isolation in the world. What could we learn from St. Thomas to kind of bring us together? Oh, yeah. And again, in many places, Thomas talks about just a general affability or friendliness, says, which we owe every person we meet, you know, we should be kind to people, acknowledge them, give them eye contact, you know, a hello. We owe this to every single person. He also talks in great depth about friendships. We can't form, we don't have the time or resources to form deep friendships with everyone we meet, but we should form some. And there, when he talks about friendships, I think it's a wonderful example of how Thomas pulls from reason and from the best of the pagan philosophy, like Aristotle, and then Christianizes it, takes it to a whole new level. So let me give you one example here. When Aristotle's writing about friendship, he says, you know, you want to treat a friend as you would yourself. They're like another self, a second self. Friends are one soul in two breasts, you know, is another, another term for it. But then in Aristotle, he actually says, well, would we want our friend to become a god? You know, he's writing in the context of the polytheistic religion. And Aristotle said, well, no, we wouldn't. And someone said, well, you want the best for your friend. Wouldn't you want them to be the best possible thing to be a god? And Aristotle says, no, because a friend should be like a second self. And if that person became a god, then, then you wouldn't have that commonality. They wouldn't be like you. So we wouldn't want that, you know. So interesting. But then Thomas, you know, Bill, borrowing so much from Aristotle, Thomas, 1,300 years later, when he's writing about the highest theological virtue of charity, he starts by saying it's charity is a friendship with God. The Christ said he came not to call his servants to friends. So he says, you know, not only, so contrary to Aristotle, he's saying literally did Aristotle know that God himself would become a man and invite us into friendship with him. So just a beautiful, beautiful way uh, transcending that Aristotelian view of friendship. But then Thomas goes on and on. I mean, there's so many things, but I'll just tell you one, one of my favorite little images from Thomas when he talks about the love of charity. He said, our love, our charity for other people should be like a powerful furnace. He said, the more powerful our furnace, the farther its heat is going to reach, you know. So our Christian love, that furnace will reach out to, even to strangers, you know, even to enemies, to people who aren't like us, to people who disagree with us, okay. But he also said, that still, though, those closest to the furnace should get the most heat. You know, we have that old saying, you know, charity begins at home. So Thomas says, yes, we should show love to everyone, but also those people who God has placed particularly close to us, our own family, our own associates, people we see in our daily lives. He said, we should make sure to really shower that love most intensely to them, to the people we have the most direct impact. So that's one of my favorite insights from Thomas. You know, become a powerful furnace, but don't forget to heat those people closest to you, the people closest in your own life. That is great. This has been a fantastic conversation. Where can people go to learn more about your work, Kevin? Well, my own website is drvost.com, just drvost.com. And I will say it's not really up to date. I don't have all my books there. Those can be found on some of the bookseller sites, but I do have at the very bottom a comment box. So if anyone had a question or comment for me, they could feel free to contact me and I will respond. Great. Dr. Kevin Vost, I appreciate your time today. It has truly been a pleasure. Me too. Thank you so much, Joshua. All the best. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you gained a bit of wisdom. You can check out the show notes at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support, please subscribe, share with a friend, and leave a review. It's a small thing that has a big impact. Until next time, be wise and be well.